right, thanks, Pastor. All right, well, good evening, everyone. Uh, so I just want to thank everyone again for your hospitality and having me in. It's a blessing. If you would, this evening, please turn to the book of Proverbs, chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1, we'll be beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> it says, The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity, to give subtlety to the simple, to the young man, knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and will understand learning, and a man of understanding will attain unto wise counsels, to understand a proverb and the interpretation of words of the wise and the dark sayings. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for a chance to be here. Lord, I don't deserve to be up here, but you chose at this time, and I pray that, uh, Lord, you'd give your people something that they need. This might be a help to them, might be an encouragement to them, might be a help to them to further along in their Christian life. And, uh, Lord, it's all up to you. I pray you'd speak to them, and I thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so I love the way the book of Proverbs opens. Some books of the Bible are like the book of John. Boom, in the beginning was the word. And the Proverbs is like that too. There's no hesitation. Um, not that genealogies aren't of God. Obviously they are, but it just, it just starts out. And you know exactly where Solomon is coming from. And of course, Solomon, uh, the book of Proverbs is written by, by Solomon and uh, the wealthiest man, the wisest man ever lived. Some people estimated that uh, he had, you know, the over a billion dollars a year coming in with all that gold. And that this isn't stocks and bonds and intangible things. This is gold, you know, like you just said. And, all. and uh, it's amazing how God blessed him, but he blessed him with the wisdom is the most important thing. And he says there that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 31 chapters, of course, he wrote, one for every day of the month, in addition to your normal Bible reading to go through there. And, uh, it's you know, love reading the book of Proverbs daily, every day. But what I want to get at today is down a little further. First he talks about how the fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom. And then in the same chapter, he has a very kind of scary passage almost here, I think. And let's go down to chapter 1 and uh, verse 22. It says, How long, ye simple ones, will you love simplicity? And the scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. Turn you at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit unto you. I will make known my words unto you. Because I have called and you refused, I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded. But you have said it not all my counsel. You would none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. When your fear cometh is desolation, and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind. When distress and anguish cometh upon you, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early and shall not find me. For they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would none of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. Therefore shall they eat the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. In that little passage there, the, uh, the word reproof shows up three times in chapter 1, 15 times in, in the Bible, the whole Bible, and uh, 13 times in the book of Proverbs. There's uh, three times in chapter 1 and four times in chapter 15, beginning in the middle of the month there. And he puts, God puts a great emphasis on reproof. What is reproof? It's basically you're being told you're wrong. It's expressing blame. And you look at this world and what they're trying to put across to us here, and what is it? Everyone is so sensitive. No one in this world can take reproof. 
No one can be told they're wrong. Kids can't be told they're wrong. Teachers can't use a red, red uh, mark on their paper. You can't give them a D. It can't, it's not acceptable. It'll make little Johnny feel bad. Boy, I, I felt bad a lot when I was a kid because I got a lot of red pens in mine. But, you know, that's, the, the, no one, the, the devil is very wise in what he's doing with this world. Because he's setting up this whole world for no one can take reproof. No one can ever be told they're wrong. It's all subjective. It's non-judgmental. So even when a person gets saved, and they come and they sit in church, and they might, have the, they might be really trying, but they've never taken any reproof in their life. And so the devil is very wise in setting this whole thing up, and it's degrading society, the character of society itself. And, <clears throat> but what I want to preach on tonight is reproof. And let's see here. You want a child, when you have a child, you have children, you want them to grow up and accomplish something, right? I mean, sometimes uh, my dad grew up during a depression and, and fought through World War II and everything. And he wanted us kids as best he could to have more than he had going up in a depression. Now, he was not saved until he's later in life. But as a Christian parent, those of us who got saved later in life, don't you want your children to have more than you had spiritually? And that's why it really, uh, I, always got, I was a youth pastor at a church for about six, seven years, and I was really got, really got a blessing on working with the youth. Because for me, you know, you'd say, hey, guys, we're, gonna, we're planning a mission trip to Puerto Rico this winter, and, you know, or eight months from now, a year from now, whatever it is. And so it gets saved, and oh, really? We get, we're going to Puerto Rico? Really, you think? And uh, they're all excited about it. And they're going to do bagging at the grocery store. They're going to sell calendars back when they used to have calendars and do all these different things to try to raise money. They're excited about it. And then the adults are like, oh. But the kids are excited. And the kids have a desire because they didn't, you have to get, you know, they got saved as a little child. And, to, and it was just a, you know, a great thing with children, young people like that, where they have a desire to do something for God. And, you know, but it's all about taking reproof. But if you want what's best for that child, don't you think the Lord wants what's best for his children? And so, well, how is he going to, how is he going to accomplish that? Let's go over to Luke chapter 23, very familiar passage. All right, one second. And a very, um, of course, it's a, the two thieves in a cross, and one was railed on him, and, and he's, the Lord is hanging there. And, and the other one, uh, the Bible says, uh, Lord, remember me when thou comest in the kingdom, verse 42. And Jesus said unto him, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Here you have two thieves, of course. And the one, he's hanging on a cross. And he, he knows he did wrong. He deserves to hang on that cross. And all he can do in his dying last day, bits of his life is rail and, 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 and uh, you know, be angry at this man, this innocent man hanging next to him. Or the other thief realizes, I'm wrong. I deserve to be here, but he doesn't. He realized, and he was able to take some reproof. And that, why didn't the other man, why didn't the other man in his last dying time think, you know, maybe there's something to this over here. Maybe I got to do what the other thief did. And, and, and especially after he heard the words, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. To our knowledge, he didn't, nothing was said after that. You would think the other thief would have said, really? 
Hey, count me in. I'm sorry what I said. They repent. But he never did. They're never able to accept reproof. What will keep a person from accepting reproof? Pride. Mostly pride. The Bible says the fear of the Lord, uh, I'm sorry, the fear of the Lord must be in a person to overcome pride and accept Jesus Christ. You know, we went over the salvation this morning a little bit, the different verses. You know, accept the man, be born again, and I am the way, the truth, and the life. You think about that, and why is it that you go to a nursing home and they're 80, 90 plus years old. They live their whole life, and you tell them about Jesus Christ. And I said, no, they don't get saved. Now, come on, really. Just logically thinking about it. If you're there and you're 90 plus years old, you know you'll have a few weeks or months to live, just logically. And you lived your, and somebody asked you about it, and, and you did not know where you go when you die. You could not answer that question. Wouldn't it just make sense to say, you know, maybe this faith in Jesus Christ is real. You know, I better do that. Because it's eternity. You know, you think they think that, but they don't. Instead, they put up a shield and say, I'm of this or I'm of that. Why? It's pride. They're unwilling to admit they're wrong. Because, see, for a person older like that to get saved, like my dad got saved when he was 64 years old, about a few months after I did. And that was a blessing. Because he lived his whole life, he raised all his kids, and he went to countless funerals. He saw my mom die when uh, she was only 44 years old. I was 10 at the time, uh, 7 at the time. And he saw her die a hard death. And for him to get saved was a miracle. Because he had to admit, at that age, having fought through World War II and a battle of the bulge and everything, he had to admit, you know, I was wrong. I was wrong the way I raised my kids. I was wrong the way I thought about God. I was wrong about going to the church I was going to. I need to get right. I need to accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. He was willing to take reproof. And that's an amazing thing. And I'm so grateful for that. Within about a couple months, he poured out his, his alcohol and all that, and he died with a smile on his face. And that's a, that's a blessing, that's a miracle. But he was able to take reproof. See, what it takes to get saved, people, is you, it takes somebody five seconds to admit that they're wrong, that they're a sinner, they believe wrong, and now they got to believe right. Five seconds. So it's either five seconds where somebody will accept Jesus Christ as their Savior by taking the reproof from the Scripture, from the Bible, what God himself says, you either accept my son or you don't, or you go to hell. Or they have a whole eternity. See, what they wanted is pride, right? And they have to admit they're wrong. We're either wrong for a few seconds, or you either admit you're wrong for a few seconds, or it's on a whole eternity in hell. Amen. And this is just speculation, but the devil hates us. And he's a king of the children of pride. And what if... What if part of the torment in hell, besides the flame and the weeping and the wailing and gnashing of teeth and incredible pain for all eternity, what if the other part of it is, is the devil constantly reminding all those people in hell, saying, you're wrong, you're wrong. You threw down that track. You're right outside that stadium and you threw that track in the ground. You could have been saved. Your mom was praying for you. Your dad was praying for you. You could have been saved. You were sitting in church on a Sunday morning. And you heard the gospel, you were wrong. And now you can be wrong for all eternity. What a horrible thing. And we can look at that, and we look at the lost people, and we can look at it and say, how can they not have sense to get saved? And yet, we return it around in our lives. And sometimes I wonder how God looks at us and says, they're sitting in church, Dave's in church. Why? 
won't he get right about this? Why won't he or she just accept the reproof? Why? I understand those people. They're without hope, without God in this world. But this brother here has had a grievance against that brother for a long time. Why can't he just accept the reproof from the preaching? He reads his Bible, but when he gets those certain verses, he just backs off. Why won't he take that reproof? And so, see, reproof is essential. Essential. What is reproof important for? It's obviously essential in his salvation. But it's essential for the Christian if they're going to live a victorious Christian life. If we're going to be a vessel meet for the master's use, we must be able to take the reproof. You know, you can, a, a person can get saved. And if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, correct? He can make anything out of anybody. He can take a drug addict that took his last shot of dope in his neck and make him a missionary in South Africa. And you know the stories, right? But what he can't do is a person, maybe they're in church a lot, they're saved, but they won't take reproof. They get to a point in their Christian life, and they got where they want, and they're just going to sit. And everything's all open for the Lord except that little corner over here. Just leave that alone because you don't want to go there. You see, he can do, may change anybody into anything, but if they won't take reproof, if you or I as Christians can't take reproof, friends, the game's over. It's done. Reproof is essential. Reproof is essential for the, for the, for the Christian life. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 64, verse 8. Hopefully it's helped you. I was going to do something different last night. It just kept popping up and popping up. And I, I know it might be a little harder or something, but I just pray it's a help to you because I, I need to be reminded of this myself all the time. Um, Isaiah 64, verse 8 says, Now, O Lord, thou art our father, we are the clay. And thou art our potter, and we are all the work of thy hand. See, we are the clay. You know what clay is? What clay is, if it's good, it's usable. And pliable and shapeable, rebukable. It's not hard. It's not fragile. It won't break if you drop it on the ground. It won't break if you go through a hard trial. It's pliable. Now, he is the potter, and we are all the work of his hand. I don't know if you ever saw a demonstration of somebody making pottery. There's a guy, Brother Ingleseth, I think, that has a kind of a ministry in that. But they have the lump of clay, and that clay... Does that clay know what it wants to be when it, when it get, grows up? When it, gets, when it gets made? It doesn't know anything. It's just a lump of clay. It's an inanimate object. But that potter puts that clay on the wheel, and he starts doing his little pedal thing and spinning it. Maybe they hit a switch now. I don't know. But he starts spinning that. He starts molding it. And God's the potter, and we are the clay. And he's trying to shape it and shape it. And if the heart's right, if your heart's willing to take rebuke, he can get that clay and say, oh, this is a nice piece of clay here. This is, I can do something with this. This type of clay is usable. Yeah, reading the Bible, praying, the reading, that last sermon, they took heed to that. I'm making, I can do something with this. This piece of clay, it's going to do, it's going to do something with this. I know what it's going to be. I know what it's going to be. And you know what? If we're on that potter's wheel, 
And if we give God something that he can work with in our lives, and God has a, he knows exactly what that vessel is going to be. Does that lump of clay? No. Do you know and I know what God has for us in our life? No. Not a clue. When I was telling pastor over lunch, I got laid off in 2002 as a project manager for IBM. And, you know, I'm, I'm literally standing out by the curb on 6th Street, downtown Minneapolis, with my box of stuff. Okay, if someone's standing outside an office building with a box of stuff, you know, they're not, you know what's going on. You know, until your wife picks you up. And I wish at that time, <clears throat> I would have hopped in a car with my wife and says, Honey, I just can't wait to see what God's going to do in my life now, because I just lost a really good job, five weeks vacation. Benefits, stock options, this is, this is going to be exciting. That was not my thought. Not at least. Not at least. About a few years ago, I actually went to Super Bowl. I was in Minneapolis. I'm down there. As we're handing out tracks, I look over and say, oh, that's the spot. 20 years later, that's the spot where I stood with my box of stuff. I see what I needed to do. I got into a point. And I was in church all the time and everything else, but God had to take that clay, wet it down, start reshaping it. Because the way I was in 2002, I could not be a youth pastor. I could not lead groups overseas. I wasn't ready for it. God had to do a work in me, and it was a hard work. And it wasn't fun work. It wasn't hard. Sometimes the potter had to really work that clay a lot because it was getting a little too hard. And he had to work with it, and God was patient, and God is long-suffering, and God is merciful. And then he started giving me a little vision along the way of what the vessel would look like. And I decided to try to be pliable. But people, those things happen in our life, and I thank God for that happening. Unfortunately, it took me a while for, that to have, to, for me to thank him. But people, we need to be that vessel. We need to be that, that I'm sorry, that piece of clay that's willing to take reproof, that's willing to be worked with God, to be worked of God. And a lot of times what's easy to do is just easy getting used to being saved. We come to church, and that's a great thing. We read our Bible, and that's a great thing. And we kind of get just kind of going along. We're on the team. Everything's good. The practices are good. Everything's good. But yet, we, our heart is not always in it. And God tries speaking to us in, in the preaching and in we got to have a heart tender. All ages in here. And so, but we have to be willing to take reproof. Ephesians 2, let's turn over to the book of Ephesians real quick. Of course, for by grace you say through faith, verse, uh, start talking all over. Verse, verse 8, for by grace are you saved through faith and out of yourselves as a gift of God, not of works as any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, verse 10, creating the Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath ordained that we should walk in them. So we are <clears throat> created unto good works. How was he going to create us unto good works? How was he going to make us unto good works if we don't take reproof? If he doesn't see things in our lives that are wrong, that we're doing wrong, or not doing the best we can at, and he's trying to, in his mercy and love, he's trying to mold us and shape us to do something. He sees what we can be. God looks out and he sees the congregation. He sees the body of Christ. And he sees the potential of everybody in this room. And you know what the weak link is? Us as individuals. 
we have to have ourselves moldable and shapeable. You know, let's um, say, say you have a family, maybe in your late 20s and 30s, and you have a family, and you have two or three kids, and you have a great family, and the oldest child's already saved. And uh, it, it's just a family that kind of in the back of your mind, your mom or dad, it's what you always wanted. And all of a sudden, the Lord, and then sometimes something the Lord puts on your heart, he says, you know, you want to you think about adopting a child. Not just any child, but I want to, this, this child you can adopt is a, kind of a really special needs one. Uh, this child is called a little boy. He's about 12 years old. Come out of an abusive relationship. He had a father that was, quite frankly, was a murderer. And that father uh, never loved him. In fact, he kind of hated him. And the mom, kind of a worthless mom, just really never showed any love for the kid. And he's, he's he, it's going to be hard. And God puts in your heart to, to, to adopt that child. And uh, you think, well, why, why would you want to do that? Why, why would you not? Because God put in your heart, you, you're going to adopt that child and raise him up as one of your own. He's going to sit at your table. He's going to be, you know, you're going to try to get him in church and get him saved. And, uh, but he's a, he's a hard kid. You're going to have your work cut out for him. And says, why, why would you want to do that? Now let's turn over to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. Yeah, your family's great, but you're going you're gonna to bring in this, uh, basically this outsider. You're going to bring somebody in his family. You could, could cause problems, but uh, this is what you're going to do. You're going to adopt that, that, that boy. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. It says, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth his spirit unto his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Howbeit, when we knew not God, he did not service unto them by nature who are no gods, but now... After you have been known of God, or rather have known of God, how turn you again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto you desire again to be in bondage? You see, the amazing thing is, is that God took us in. He didn't have to, but God took us in to as many as received him, to then give be power to become the sons of God. And so we're his children now. Okay, parents, <clears throat> when, you, when you remember back when you're, you're expecting your child, and uh, mom and dad, you, you know, your first child, and you see, look, you find out what you're expecting, and then the baby's growing and growing, and praising you pretty soon, and mom, you can feel it kick, and even dad can, you know, feel the baby kick. It's a beautiful, wonderful thing. And you love that child before it's even born. You have a love for that child. Something goes wrong, and one of our, first, our firstborn, you couldn't hear the heartbeat several times in your pregnancy, and run down to the doctor, you can hear the heartbeat, you can hear the heartbeat, because uh, you, you love that child. You haven't even seen the child yet. But then when that baby's born, and you hold that baby, there's an instant love. Does it end there? You say, well, hey, that was neat. Um, yeah, we'll see you later. You spend your whole life, especially the first 18 years, especially the teen years, raising that child and spending time with the child and try to raise them up and mold them and shape them is what you feel God would have them to be. And God is the same with us. He's taking time and patience and love, and he's trying to mold and shape us into what he would have us to be. 
Let's take a look, and uh, it's up to us. Are we going to be, what kind of a child are we going to be? Are we going to be moldable and shapeable? Let's look back to two, a couple of examples in the scriptures here. Uh, back in 1 Samuel 15, look at David and Saul for a few moments. And look at these two examples as two prime examples of uh, Saul, who can never, never take reproof, can never take any type of rebuke whatsoever. And of course, David, who could. And Saul, and this is a little st- lesson in this here, it's uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 3. Uh, it says, Now go and smite the Malachites and utterly destroy them, all that they have, and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep and camel and ass. And we'll, we'll skip over the rest of the part of the chapter there as we know what happened. But then later, of course, he doesn't do that, right? So in, in uh, verse 10, it says, Then came the word unto Samuel, saying, It repenteth me, that I have set up Saul to be king, for he turneth back from following, he turneth his back from following me, and hath not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. And when Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul cometh to Carmel, and behold, he set up a place and has gone about and passed on and gone down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be thou, O Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What meaneth then this, the bleeding of the sheep in mine ears, and lowering the oxen which I hear? No, he didn't do what God commanded. He did not do what God commanded. You notice what he saved? He killed the children. He killed the women. He saved the sheep? Really? You know why he saved the sheep? They meant something to him. There's something to him. But anyway, he did not not do as God commanded. Now right there, at that point... Saul should have known he did wrong. God told him exactly what to do. At that point, Saul, Saul should have repented and just got things right. He says, man, I know. I should have killed all the sheep. I should, have, I should have done I'm sorry. No, he didn't. He tried justifying himself and justifying himself. Um, 15, uh, chapter 15, 13 there. And he, he, did, not, he did not do. Uh, and I look uh, exactly what the Lord said. And I'll skip ahead a little bit. Uh, he Basically, from um, verse 14 to verse 29, Samuel just lays into Saul and explains, and it just, you know, it rebukes him, rebukes him for what he's done. And all the way down through verse 29, and also the strength of Israel will not lie, repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. Then he's, then, okay, so he should have repented properly, but Saul did not. Then he said, I have sinned. Well, he should have just stopped there. And he should have meant it with all his heart, but he didn't. Yet honor me now, I pray thee, before the elders of my people, and before Israel, and turn me again with me, that I may worship the Lord thy God. Wait, Saul, the Lord thy God? He's not your God? Lord thy God? You see, all he cared about was himself. That's all he cared about. And sometimes a person might come to the altar, a person might you know, have a, an act of repentance, and really, all they care about is saving face. That's, people, that's not true repentance. True repentance, we'll get to later, is David. But all he cared about was saving face. And instead, he says, he says just uh, honor me now, I pray thee, before the elders. He says, in front, hey, hey, Samuel, in front of all these people, will you honor me? Because I've kind of made a mess of things, and it doesn't look good. It doesn't look good at all. That's what he's getting at. And Lord thy God, 
Isn't he your God, Saul? Sad, sad situation he's in. And then we look forward a little bit. Of course, we have uh, David and the whole thing with, with Goliath. And so there he is for 40 days, and his Philistine's coming out. We don't know how much time later. It's two chapters in the Bible. The Philistine's coming out and just harassing the children of Israel. You know the story. And Saul is the king. And Saul should have gone out. But Saul didn't go out. He should have, but he didn't. You wonder if it wasn't because maybe God wasn't, he didn't, maybe he had no presence, well, he probably didn't have any presence of God whatsoever because he never did get right about the sheep thing. We don't know why, but for whatever reason, God used a boy to do Saul's job because Saul wasn't equipped for it. Saul wasn't equipped for it. First uh, Samuel 17, I said the, first, the champion came out there for Goliath for 40 days, and Saul knew he should have slain the giant, but he didn't. He had 40 days. He had 40 days to repent. He still could get right about, that, about the uh, thing with Agag, but he didn't. He didn't get right. And then David goes out and kills Goliath, and for the rest of Saul's life, he is just smitten with jealousy. He could have gotten right. He could have repented. He could have taken the rebuke from God, but he never did. He could hear them singing, David has slain his, uh, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has ten thousands. He, should, he could have gotten back. He could have got right then. Instead, he got bitter, and he got bitter, and he got bitter. And Saul was never the same after that, after those, those cases. Uh, Saul knew he should have gone and slain the giant, but he didn't. He was just unrepentant of the sin. And we will go and get to David in a second, but let's fast forward to the end of their lives. How did Saul die? He fell on the sword. Not a very glorious way to die. And David died peacefully. But let's study out uh, David just for a second here. And we take a look in, in, and, uh, at his life. Let's see. Let's turn one second. Second Samuel chapter twelve verse thirteen. One of the really sad time and hard, you know, David's greatest sin. We know what happened there. Yeah, he sinned with Bathsheba and had Uriah the Hittite killed. And uh, in verse thirteen, uh, let's go back a little bit. So basically, David, I'm sorry, uh, Nathan the prophet. Tells David all he did wrong in verse 11. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against the, the, out of the, thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes, and give them unto thy neighbor. And he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of the sun. For thou didst secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And verse 13, And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, just think about this for a second. Put yourself back in that time. There is no, <clears throat> there is no offering for adultery. There was no offering for, for murder. It was death. Here's the king of Israel, and Nathan comes in and lays on alliances. This is what happened. He says, this is what happened to you. And David, we don't know if there's a hesitation between those two verses, if there's a time of reflection, or if David was immediate. Whatever the case was, David said, I have sinned against the Lord. When he said that, he knew that by sundown, he could be a dead man. He knew that. And he's facing the man of God, and he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And we don't know, again, if there's a pause there. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe Nathan was immediate. Whatever the case was, it's fun to ponder. 
And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also shall put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. What if David didn't have that attitude? What if he would have said in verse 13, well, you know, Nathan, you don't know what it's like. You know, you don't know what it's like to be me and to have all these temptations and I can do anything I want and I just couldn't resist it. He might have been a dead man by evening. But David did the right thing. David was take the, the king of Israel, the power to do, take someone's head off, was willing to take reproof from the man of God. And he says, I have sinned against the Lord. That is a great example, people. And I already, I already mentioned it, but how did they die? David died a man after God's own heart. He died a sweet psalmist of Israel. He died at peace. And Saul lived quite a miserable life. He never had peace again. He had evil spirits trouble him. He ended up falling on a sword at the end of his life. Now, are you going to fall? On a, you know, if you don't take reproof to where you are, are you going to die like Saul? Probably not. But you're not going to live a victorious Christian life. We get the judgment seat of Christ, and I want to hear, well done, a good and faithful servant. I don't want to have the Lord say, you know, Dave, this is what, maybe it'll still be that way and to some extent for sure. But this is, if you would have accepted reproof, if you would have followed me wholeheartedly, this is kind of what I was planning for you. This could have been your life. You know that chick track, this was your life? What if the Lord has that for us? Been a reverse there for the judgment seat. But you know, most Christians will take reproof fairly well. Uh, some, some have a hard time with it. Uh, some people, you know, quite frankly, they just, they just always have, it, have to be right. Now, here's the thing, a little test for yourself. If, uh, if you're right, if you think you're right, if you go through life, you think, well, I think I'm right most of the time. Or if you're right over half the time, you've got to do a little check there because most likely you're not. You know, it's going to be 50-50 at the best, right? So something to, th to think on. But, you know, you would you, are you going to be like Saul? Are you going to go through your life and not be able to take reproof and not have a God intended for you? Um, it's easier... You know, sometimes it's easier to say no to God than to somebody in person. You know, maybe you as a person can take reproof from a person. Say, hey, uh, brother, you know, this is kind of bothering me. If you could just start doing this a little more and, you know, it's okay. But, you know, it's hard is to take it from God because nobody else knows about it. That's a private matter, just you and him. The Lord puts something on your heart and says, hey, you got to stop this. You got to start this. It's hard to take that reproof. It's hard to people. That's what we need to do. That's what we need to do. Uh, pride will keep men from taking reproof and getting saved. And it'll, it'll keep people from living a victorious vic, vic, uh, Christian life. It'll keep people from uh, living the life that God has for them, having a more abundant life. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 5, please. 1 Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5, uh, verse 6. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. That just humbling yourself is just being Ill, willing to take, to take reproof like we need to. Uh, how can we, but how can we be assured 
uh, sorry, how can we how can we, we be assured that we'll that we are able to take reproof or what can we do? Well, first off, we can try to have a tender heart. Psalm thirty four eighteen says, The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. It also says in Psalm fifty one seventeen, it says, The sacrifices of God are of a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. You see that what the Lord wants out of us is that lump of clay to be moldable and shapeable and to do better. He is able to mold it in whatever way he can. But you know what? We have to take that reproof. And if you do, God can do anything he wants uh, with us at that point. Um, but in Psalm 139, verse 23, it says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in a way of everlasting. Uh, Fear God. You know what? Uh, let's see here. You know, it's like a child wants to please his mother or father. And I remember as a child, a child, I was a teenager growing up. And uh, I got involved with some stuff. And my dad found out and totally blindsided him. And I remember sitting at that kitchen table with my, my stepmother. And uh, it was like one of the worst times of my life. And my mom made a comment. She says, I'm just glad your mom's not here to see this, what you did. Boy, that cut to my heart. You know, I don't want to get the judgment seat of Christ and face that kind of, make, I didn't, at that point, I was so grieved in my heart that I had disappointed my father because I knew he loved me. I knew he really went through a hard time. My mom died and he tried his best and all these different things. I knew that. I had a loving home. And when I grieved them like that, that turned me around, into, you know, and I just, I don't want to do that to my Heavenly Father. I don't want to get the judgment seat of Christ and have these things faced because I was not, as a Christian, being able to take reproof. And so just as that child wants to please his father, so what we want to try to please our Savior. The Bible says in Ephesians 4.30 to 32, and it says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby we're sealed unto the day of redemption. I grieve my parents that day, and I don't want to, I don't want to grieve my Heavenly Father. But God wants His people to take reproof so He can mold us and shape us to His honor and glory. He is the pot and we're the clay. He knows what He wants from each one in this room. He knows what the future holds. We don't know anything. We're just that lump of clay. But it's our job as a Christian to be in church and to read our Bibles and apply what we learn in the Bibles. But, but underlying that, the foundation of that all, is to have a tender heart where God can get a hold of you. God could always get a hold of David. Always. But Saul, not. Never could. Saul, God could never get a hold of Saul. And you see how their lives ended up so totally different. So there's some things to, to make me think and dwell on about taking reproof. He can take, the Lord can do anybody, anything with anybody except with somebody that can't take reproof. So that's uh, Pastor all I have for tonight there.